The last verse of the last chapter of John's Gospel reads, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Which holds out the the tantalizing prospect of what could have been had God so willed. More books about Jesus, the incarnate word, than the whole world could store. But in God's perfect wisdom, he saw fit to provide us with four canonical gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm sure that John, being an eyewitness to Jesus, being an eyewitness to his ministry for three years, he could have recounted all sorts of miracles performed by Jesus, various teachings, dialogues between Jesus and the religious authorities, which he did not. He edits them out. But under, but under God's sovereign guidance, what the evangelist does include is 42 verses devoted to Samaritan evangelism. Christian, have you ever wondered why John commits so much space to this particular two-day event out of an overall three-year public ministry? The answer is because here we find Jesus doing something no Jew thought the long-prophesied Messiah ever would. He's preaching to a people group outside the covenant community of Israel. We just take it for granted, but this would have been shocking at the time. People who are not natural, biological heirs to the covenant promises that God made with the patriarch Abraham. There is, frankly, a racist backdrop running throughout this story. Racially, Jews considered Samaritan people to be, in the derogatory parlance of the times, mongrel half-breeds. And they would have meant that in the worst possible sense. Because Samaritans used to be Jews. Samaritans used to be full-blooded, direct descendants of Abraham. But not anymore. Just as they used to be faithful to the teachings of Scripture. But not anymore. Now they're religious apostates. And yet Jesus spends two days with the despised Samaritans in their village... And by God's grace, many end up believing that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And this theme of God's covenant mercy extending beyond the nation of Israel, beyond the ethnic particularism which characterized the old covenant, that's an important theme not only in this chapter, in chapter 4, but throughout the whole Gospel of John. And, of course, in the outworking of salvation history. Paul writes to Gentile Christians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what we see worked out in the book of Acts, of course, is a new phase of God's salvation mercy beginning. And a time when Gentiles, Gentiles are being evangelized. Gentiles are being filled with the Spirit. They're not having to be circumcised. And they're being brought into God's kingdom. And this is one important theme of John chapter 4, our text today. God's covenant mercies extend beyond the nation of Israel. Another important theme of this chapter follows what we've just learned in chapter 3 from Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. The nature of the new birth and the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has just told the Jewish religious leader Nicodemus that if a person is to see or enter into the kingdom of God, then they must be born again. They must be born from above by God's Spirit. And now... John elaborates on that truth I couldn't hear what you said. in chapter 4, which means there are two Holy Spirit conversations back-to-back in John's Gospel. Did you know that? Two Holy Spirit conversations back-to-back in John's Gospel, chapter 3 and chapter 4. One conversation is with a well-respected Jewish religious leader. He's a man in the holy city of Jerusalem. 
The other conversation is by a well in Sikar with a religious apostate of despised ethnic extraction and a woman to boot. A woman who has had multiple husbands and who presently lives in a sinful relationship with a man who is not her husband. These two characters are so different in so many respects, but both share the same basic need. The basic need we all share. Just like Nicodemus, just like the Samaritan woman, we must be born again. We must be born from above by God's Spirit. And I believe those are the two primary purposes John has for including this episode in his gospel. God's covenant mercies extend beyond the nation of Israel and the necessity of the new birth by the Holy Spirit mediated through Jesus. And in my sermon today, I certainly engage with those two themes, but as you can see from your sermon outline, I've arranged the passage into groupings which have more to do with Jesus' approach to evangelism and lessons Christians can learn from Jesus in how to proclaim the truth of the Christian faith to other people. So I've changed the accent of the passage, its emphasis, and I want us to be aware of that, okay? I'll I'll repent for doing this after I preach it. Today's sermon is entitled, Five Lessons from Jesus the Evangelist. Now, when Christians speak of evangelism, what we mean is proclaiming or declaring the evangel, a Greek word which means good news, the gospel, with the intent to persuade people. And what is this good news we're declaring to people with the intent to persuade them? Sin canceled, divine judicial wrath averted, Satan death in the grave defeated, the hope of the new heavens and new earth, all in consequence of what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin and is received by the guilty sinner through the means of faith alone. And whenever we we faithfully proclaim that message, brothers and sisters, we are being evangelists. We are proclaiming the gospel. We're proclaimers of God's good news. But if I'm honest, I find I'm much more inclined to evangelize people who are just like me. The more cultural, socioeconomic, political, ethnic, gender, sexual orientation, worldview, epistemological barriers I have to cross, the more tempted I am to keep my mouth shut. But Jesus evangelizes everybody. Jesus is an indiscriminate evangelist. If you're a sinner then Jesus talks to you. Which is just another way of saying Jesus speaks to everybody because we're all sinners. Brothers and sisters, here's our call to Christian action. We need to be prepared, like Jesus, to evangelize anyone at the drop of a hat. Here's a woman with a bad reputation coming to a well for water. Jesus makes the most of it. And just like Jesus, we need to press the point that salvation turns on the Holy Spirit mediated exclusively through him. Just like Jesus, we must expose sin. Just like Jesus, we must show lost sinners the necessity of the new birth. Just like Jesus, we must resist the temptation not to make it abundantly clear that the only worship God finds acceptable is in spirit and in truth. And then we must pray to God for the grace to see the city of Toronto as a ripe field for harvest. Just waiting, just waiting for faithful evangelists to work the fields and reap an abundant harvest for the glory of God. So that's kind of the outline of where we're going today. But if we're truly going to imitate our Lord's example, then first we need to understand something of the history of the Samaritan people. We can read it for ourselves in books of the Bible, such as 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, sort of the red-headed stepchildren of the Old Testament. When's the last time you read those books straight through, Christian? For shame. <laughs> 
so let me just tell you the history of those books right now. I'm just going to describe it. After the reign of Israel's third king, Solomon, Israel divided into two kingdoms. The kingdom in the north was called Israel. And it was comprised of ten tribes, all descendants of the sons of Jacob. The kingdom in the south was called Judah. And it was composed of two tribes from the line of Jacob, Judah and Benjamin. Jesus, of course, is from the tribe of Judah. Those two kingdoms, the north and the south, remained in that divided state for a few hundred years. Now, the northern kingdom of of Israel's last king, his name was Hosea, he was paying tribute to the superpower of the day, Assyria. But then, King Hosea transferred his allegiance to Egypt after being warned by God not to do so. The Assyrians didn't appreciate that none too much, so they attacked and they captured the capital city, which was called Samaria, in 722 B.C. That's just a good date for you to have in your back pocket. 722 B.C. Most of the Jews were driven out of the country into exile. Only the very poor remained. They were allowed to farm the land. But through forced resettlement then, foreigners, Gentiles from the surrounding countries, they settled in that area, and then they intermarried with the remaining Israelites. And their Jewish faith was soon contaminated by the pagan practices of the Gentiles they had married. And these people eventually became Samaritans. And a central part of the former northern kingdom of Israel was renamed Samaria. And after the 70-year Babylonian exile, when the southern kingdom of Judah returned to the land, they viewed the Samaritans in the north not only as children of political rebels, but racial half-breeds whose religion was corrupt. And during the Hellenistic and Roman period, uh, the name of the southern kingdom of Judah was Hellenized to Judea. If you have your church Bible there, on page 962, you can kind of see a map of what this looks like. You just see Samaria right in the middle between uh, Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. So something else to bear in mind This is a key component of our story today. The Samaritans accepted as Holy Scripture only, only the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they even built their own temple on Mount Gerizim in 400 B.C. Can you imagine? Their own temple. But where was the only place on earth Yahweh's special revelatory presence dwelt? The only place on earth where sacrifices to Yahweh were to be offered. Jerusalem. The Samaritan temple was destroyed in 120. The Samaritan temple was destroyed in 128 BC, uh, but the Samaritans still worshipped on Mount Gerizim in Jesus' day. And actually, they still do today. There are 800 Samaritans left in the world. They still worship there. They still have Passover and slaughter lambs and stuff on Mount Gerizim. But, uh, but because of this, the Samaritans were despised by Jews. That's the background. All right? So let's dive into the text. Verses 1 to 6. So he left Judea in the south and went back once more to Galilee in the north. And if Jesus wants to go north to Galilee, then he had to go through Samaria as we read in verse 4. Verse 5, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph, which we can read all about in Genesis 48, 22. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. And amazingly, this well still exists today, and it still functions. It's a functioning well. Tourists flock to it. A very old Greek Orthodox church is built on the site, So we actually know the dimensions here. The well is 138 feet deep, and it's fed by an underground spring. That's a very important point. And Jesus, tired from his journey, he sits down by the well. John's already told us in chapter 1, verse 14, that the eternal word became flesh. And that's what we're seeing here. God's eternal son is tired. He's thirsty. He's hungry. Apart from sin, Jesus entered completely into our experience as human beings. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? 
his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So in this culture, women came in groups to get water, either in the morning or in the evening when it was cooler. But this woman has had five husbands, and she's now living in a common-law relationship. So she is a social pariah. The women of the town want nothing to do with her, so she draws her water out in the midday sun. But her creator God, her savior, is sitting on the side of the well, watching her as she makes her way towards him. And Jesus knows all about her. And he still deliberately asks her for a drink. Verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Or a better translation might be what you see in the footnote. Uh, Do not use dishes Samaritans have used. Culturally speaking, Jesus is showing uncommon goodwill here. This is a surprising, shocking thing that he's doing culturally speaking. This lady would have been very surprised by our Lord's request. First, she's a Samaritan. Second, she is a Samaritan woman. And within a generation, Jewish leaders would codify law, reflecting long-standing popular sentiment that, quote, all the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruates from the cradle and are therefore perpetually ceremonially unclean. So, as a Jew, if you touched a cup a Samaritan woman had used, you were defiled. You must wash your clothes, bathe with water, and you would still be unclean until evening. And if that weren't enough prejudice, for a rabbi to talk with even a Jewish woman was considered a complete waste of time. Look at verse 27. The misogyny just comes oozing through. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. That was the popular prejudice of the day. Uh, Listen to this this classic comment from a second century Jewish rabbi. Maybe I'm weird, but it's so misogynistic I find it downright funny because it's so over the top. This is what they say. Prolong not conversation with a woman. That is to say, even with one's own wife. How much more with a neighbor's wife? Hence, the wise man says, he who prolongs conversation with a woman brings evil upon himself, ceases from the words of the law, and at last inherits Gehenna. (laughs) Now, obviously, all those prejudices are wrong and sinful and stupid and unbiblical, but what can we learn from this? It teaches us that Jesus evangelized everyone. There was no category of person with whom Jesus did not associate or show love. Jesus allowed notorious sinners, sinners like the sexually immoral woman in Luke 7, to physically touch him in a culture where ceremonial purity was the first of all social considerations. Jesus deliberately ate meals with despised tax collectors. Tax collectors were the lackeys of the occupying Roman government, but Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. And Levi, the tax collector, became an apostle and the author of the Gospel of Matthew. And we read in this chapter that Jesus the Jew spent two days ministering in a Samaritan village. I mean, that's like spending two days at Chernobyl, you know, from a Jewish perspective. It's like there's ceremonial uncleanliness everywhere. Even the despised knew the love of Jesus. So, so how is it? How is that gracious, loving, non-judgmental attitude being displayed in our own witness, brothers and sisters. Are we battling the sinful prejudices of our hearts? I'm speaking to a Toronto church. We're a cosmopolitan bunch. But who are the despised Samaritans in your culture? The people from that other culture or ethnicity you've perhaps been taught from your youth to look as being a step down from you. Are you only prepared to date or marry Christians within your own race? Why is that? I know a brother in Christ from Eastern Europe who is taught from his mother's knee to hate Jews. 
And that was one of the ways he saw God's transforming grace in his life. When the Lord saved him as an adult, he stopped being an anti-Semite. Or what about in our, our church culture, as we look out at an unbelieving world? What do you think about making friends with your lesbian neighbors? What do you think about inviting them over for dinner and letting your kids play with their kids? What about people from very different socioeconomic educational brackets? Who do you invite over for dinner from your neighborhood? Only the beautiful people who have it all together? Jesus was a friend of sinners. Are we imitating our master and making personal connections with the marginalized? If not we, who've been shown so much grace, then who? Evangelism lesson number two. Jesus pressed the point that salvation turns on the Holy Spirit mediated exclusively through him, and so must we. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but what I find most intimidating about uh, proclaiming the good news of what God's accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection for sin is the exclusivity of the message. Evangelism would be super easy, very easy, if choosing a religion were like choosing a diet or choosing an exercise regimen that's custom-tailored, right, to my height and my weight and my body type. Uh, Something that works for me, but not necessarily for someone else. And Jesus just happens to be my personal trainer. So perhaps for you, it's Gautama the Buddha or Muhammad or Tony Robbins. Have you ever been in a situation where you're telling someone that you're a Christian and you're explaining to them what it is that you believe and, and they're nodding and they're smiling the whole time because they just assume you believe all those things in a subjective sense? They're thinking, isn't that nice? You found a religion that works for you. Jesus is your personal trainer. That's great. I'm happy for you. But after a while, they catch on. And, and you, you see what's happening. Yeah, so you, you take a deep breath, and you pray for grace, and you get more explicit. You tell them of their need of a Savior, their need for repentance, their absolute need for Jesus Christ. The absolute culture-transcending truth of what the Bible teaches. And finally, the penny drops. But not the penny of the truth of the gospel, glorious salvation, full and free. It's the penny dropped of what an intolerant, narrow-minded, and bigoted person you truly are. They weren't expecting it. They're, They're shocked that you actually believe this in an absolute sense. And when matters turn to the exclusivity of the gospel, of how salvation is not a custom-made, tailor-fit experience to suit our preferences, but that every knee must bow before the lordship of Jesus Christ, that's when I'm tempted to close my mouth. That's going to be a difficult conversation. But Jesus doesn't shy away from that sort of loving confrontation. Jesus knows that eternal souls are on the line, and we need to be imitating our master in this. Salvation turns on the person of the Holy Spirit as mediated exclusively through Jesus Christ. There is no other way for sinners to be reconciled to God. We must be born again. We must be born from above by God's Spirit. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If this woman woman knew who Jesus really was, the eternal son, the word made flesh in whom there is life, she would have been pressing him for a far, far better drink. The gift of God she does not recognize is eternal life. Eternal life only Jesus can bestow. Now, living water is a very important term in John's gospel. And this woman finds it confusing because it has two levels of meaning. One way the term living water is used in this culture is in reference to fresh running water from a spring. 
So just like the spring that feeds this well in our story. So when Jesus says that he can supply this woman with living water, she interprets it to mean not the water that's been standing on the top of the well that's all stale and nasty, but the cool spring water at the bottom of this being fed by the stream. That's why she asks him for his bucket, right? How are you going to reach this living water, sir, this, this fresh running water at the bottom of the well? But the second meaning living water carries, which is a meaning the woman could not have known and which first-time readers of John's gospel could not have known either, is found in John 7, 37. Just turn there quickly. John 7, 37. Again, we see John expects us to read his gospel more than once so that we can catch this reference the second time through. Because we read it the first time in John 4, we'd have no clue what he's talking about. 737. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman that eternal life, the gift of God, is tied up with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is the one who pours out the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, this this woman is at a a disadvantage in being able to decipher what Jesus is actually saying because her Bible stops at the book of Deuteronomy. And Jesus is alluding to texts from the prophet Isaiah. Texts like Isaiah 12.3. In the day of God's salvation, with joy, God's people will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah 44.3. The pouring out of God's Spirit will be like pouring of water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Isaiah 55, 1-3. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, that your soul may live. Jesus is telling this woman that he, he himself, Jesus, is inaugurating an, that era in which brings to fulfillment these Old Testament promises concerning the outpouring and the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit apart from whom there is no eternal life. And beloved, if we're going to imitate our Lord, then we need to proclaim that same exclusivist truth, no matter what the culture thinks of us. Now, now obviously, what we'll say now, this side of the cross, this side of Pentecost, will be different from what Jesus says here. I mean, no one's going to understand you if you just talk about living water and keep it at that. You need to unpack things. Um, But we're one step ahead of Jesus in salvation history at this point. So the new covenant has been inaugurated in his blood. But the principle is the same. Point number two. Jesus pressed the point that salvation turns on the Holy Spirit mediated exclusively through him. And so must we. Go back, friends, perhaps, and, and listen to the sermon from John 3 I preached a few weeks ago on being born again, born from above by God's Spirit. Everything we need to know, the theological underpinning of this, is all right there. It's in John 3. Uh, this account is a continuation of that same theme. All right, lesson number three. In his evangelism, Jesus exposes sin, thus showing the necessity of the new birth. So must we. Now we can see by how the Samaritan woman responds to Jesus in verse 15 that this is going over her head. She just doesn't have the category. So to help her come to terms with the nature of the gift he's offering, Jesus asks that she bring her husband to him. And by doing this, 
Jesus indicates to the woman that she's misunderstood the true dimensions of her own need. Uh, She's misunderstood the real nature of her self-confessed thirst. Jesus is telling her, I'm going to show you now how much you need this living water, living water which only I can provide. And Jesus does that by exposing to her her greatest sin. Do you recall the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? And he says, I've kept the law of Moses since I was a child. What else must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? Sell everything you own and follow me. But the man went away sad because his highest priority in life was money. And Jesus knew it. Every person is an open book to Jesus Christ. Friend, have you done things in your life that make you squirm with shame even to think about them? Things perhaps you've never told another living soul? Jesus knows every bit of it. Jesus knows all your sin. Jesus is intimately acquainted with the darkest, most secret recesses of your heart. And still, still, he offers you living water. Full forgiveness. He offers eternal life. The indwelling of the Spirit of God. And now Jesus is going to show this woman how much she needs this living water, which only he can give her by exposing her greatest sin. This is a loving action. Verse 16, he told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And and you know she's thinking, okay, this is super awkward. Let's just, let's just ward off all further probing into this very sensitive area of my life. Because presumably, her five husbands had either died or divorced her. And she's not married to the man that she's sleeping with presently. But notice, in this case, Jesus doesn't come down like a ton of bricks. He doesn't point his finger and yell, fornicator! He exposes the whole truth, but in the gentlest possible way. 17b, he said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. And here's the lesson. When Jesus evangelizes, he exposes sin, thus showing the necessity of the new birth. It's one thing to tell non-Christian skeptics and unbelievers, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. Jesus died for me, which in our post-modern culture will be taken merely as a subjective truth claim. But it's another thing altogether to confront a person's smug self-righteousness. When we evangelize the unbeliever's sin, their rebellion against God, their idolatry and anarchy, their spiritual deadness, their outrageous spiritual autonomy and self-righteousness must be made plain to them from Scripture, just as it was made plain to us, thus showing us the necessity of the new birth. And that takes courage. It takes loving boldness, empowered by God's enabling grace. It takes faithfulness. It's hard to do. God's grace is rich and it's free. It extends to every category of sinner. It even reaches into our category and saved us. But for that glorious truth to make any sense, right? For it to be recognized as being good news, sin must first be exposed for what it is. Will you do it, Christian? Lesson four, Jesus pushed the exclusivist claim that the only worship God finds acceptable is in spirit and truth. So must we. Verse 19, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, on Mount Gerizim, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. 
I'm sure we've all met people, and maybe you are one of these annoying people, uh, who cannot engage in a religious conversation with a Christian of a different doctrinal persuasion without bringing up the points on which they differ. Don't be that person, all right? That's super annoying. Um, It's exasperating. But I, I think this woman might be one of those people. Maybe I'm being uncharitable, but that's what it looks like to me. Once she discovers that Jesus is a prophet... That prompts her to raise the outstanding point of theological attention between the Jews and the Samaritans, the geographical location of where God is to be worshipped. First thing she says, is it on Mount Gerizim or is it in Jerusalem? Tell me. Verse 21, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Did you catch that? I mean, implications abound. Verse 21 would be scandalous to Jewish ears. Jesus is saying the function of the Jerusalem temple will one day be obsolete. It won't be needed. You won't have to worship God in Jerusalem. Verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time, an hour is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. An hour is coming, Jesus says. A time is coming. And in John's Gospel, this hour, it's always hour in the Greek, but this hour always refers to the hour of Jesus' cross, resurrection, and exaltation, or the situation that's introduced by Jesus' passion and his exaltation. It's used in that sense multiple, multiple times throughout this gospel. So let's get it under our belts right now, because it happens all the time. Uh, Jesus is telling this woman that because of his death and resurrection, the question of where, geographically, God will be worshipped is going to be supplanted with how he is worshipped. In spirit and truth. We'll look at that, what that means in just one minute uh, when we get to verse 23. But Jesus is saying there's, there's not a whole lot to be gained here by prolonged debate about the relative merits of Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim since both sites are about to be bypassed by those who truly, truly worship the Father. It, it, he's basically saying this is a moot point because of my death and, and, and resurrection. That's what he's saying. Verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. And there we have an in-your-face, pull-no-punches sort of statement. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Jesus is saying that the object of the Samaritans' worship is unknown to them. God himself is unknown to the Samaritans. Why? Because they stand outside the stream of God's revelation. They don't possess the Word of God in its entirety. They only have the first five books of the Bible. So what they worship cannot possibly be characterized by truth and knowledge. So Jesus tells her, we Jews worship what we do know because Jews stand within the stream of God's saving revelation. We Jews know the one whom we worship and salvation is from the Jews. As one commentator writes, Jews are the vehicle of God's saving revelation, the historical matrix out of which that revelation emerges. Just read the Old Testament. It all starts with the promises made to the patriarch Abraham, doesn't it? What does Paul say in Romans 9.4? Speaking of Israel, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. And the ultimate authority for Jews and Samaritans lies in their respective Bibles. And Jesus comes down decisively on the side of the Jews. They're the ones possessing the oracles of God. And the lesson for us, as we follow Jesus' example, brothers and sisters, is that we must be emboldened in our evangelism to push that point. If we're speaking to our Jewish or Muslim friends, our Hindu or Buddhist friends, we must tell them in all appropriate humility, but with absolute certainty, 
friend, the object of your worship, the God of the universe, is unknown to you because you do not have the scriptures. Let me speak to you of the God who is there as he has disclosed himself to his creation in the Bible and ultimately in the person of his eternal son, Jesus Christ. Verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Jesus is using an oxymoron. He's asserting not only that the period of worship in spirit and truth is about to come, because it awaits uh, his, his death and resurrection, um, but that it already has come in his ministry. Not only is the time coming, it has now come. It's already present, even before the cross. And I know, this is difficult. I know our, our NIV, if you're used to the NIV Bibles, our church Bibles, in verse 24, it reads, His worshipers must worship the, and then capital S, Spirit. Must worship in the, capital S, Spirit, so the person of the Holy Spirit, and in truth. But the Greek text does not have the definite article, the. Nor is the word spirit capitalized. That's an interpretive decision. Not every Bible translation agrees with. The ESV doesn't go that way. The NLT does not translate it that way. Uh, I think spirit in this context characterizes what God is like. In the same way that flesh and location characterize what human beings and our world is like. God is otherworldly. He is spirit. And with the coming of Jesus Christ and the dawning of the new covenant, appropriate worship of God is no longer tied to a specific geographical location as it was in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying that worshiping God in a temple in Jerusalem will soon be obsolete. The day has come, the day is coming. Jesus is telling this Samaritan woman that in the new age that he's ushering in, worship of God will be as geographically extensive as God himself who is omnipresent. That's what he's saying. Mount Gerizim, Jerusalem, the Antarctic, the dark side of the moon, it doesn't matter. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth, which means worship of God must be in line with what is of ultimate truth. And what is truth in John's gospel? Jesus himself. Jesus is full of grace and truth, 114. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. 14.6. Jesus is the true light, 1.9. The true temple, 2.19. The true bread from heaven, 6.25. The true vine, 15.1. To worship God in spirit and in truth is first and foremost a way of saying that we must worship God by means of Jesus Christ. Christian worship is Christ-centered worship. It is cross-focused worship. Those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So, friend, be warned. If you are a sincere follower of an ancient religion that promotes peace and harmony, in which you find spiritually fulfilling, but Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh, crucified for sin, raised for our justification, and exalted to the right hand of the Father, if he is not at the very center of your worship of God, then God does not find your worship acceptable. You are not worshiping God in truth. Again, there's that exclusivist component our culture finds so, so offensive. But Jesus pushed those exclusivist claims, didn't he? He did so in love. And so must we. Now, I know what you may be thinking. John, if I follow Jesus' example here, are people going to listen to me? Is this a wise, is this a prudent approach to evangelism? Maybe I should try to be a bit more PC, 
more tolerant, more diplomatic, more Canadian. Maybe back in the day, back in the 1950s, when everybody was watching Leave it to Beaver, and they were all sort of religious anyway back then, this kind of more like shoot-from-the-hip sort of straight-talk evangelism was all right. You know? But this is Toronto 2022. Perhaps Jesus' evangelistic example stopped being wise in this country decades ago. Friend, don't listen to that lie. That's a lie from the pit of hell to shut you up from, from proclaiming Jesus to the perishing. We all need to trust that Jesus knows better and that his presentation of the truth serves as a timeless model for all cultures to follow and obey. Jesus shows us that it's actually more important to love people by proclaiming to them the truth than to be liked by everybody. It's more important to love people by proclaiming the truth than to be liked by everybody. Christian, are you prepared to live that way? Is this going to characterize your Christian life as you leave through those doors? God's grace assisting you. That leads us to our final point. Evangelism lesson number five. Jesus had a ripe harvest evangelistic outlook, an outlook that balances God's sovereignty and human responsibility. So must we. Beloved, we'll never attempt to put into practice the four previous lessons if this fifth lesson is not believed first. Is that important? Think of it this way. When we pray, if we're not expecting the Lord to hear our prayers and then answer our prayers in accordance with his perfect will, then our prayers are just a meaningless religious ritual, right? Likewise, if we're standing around the water cooler at work thinking about sharing the good news of the gospel with a colleague, but debating the wisdom of such faithfulness because the person probably won't respond positively anyway, then why in the world would we take the risk? It's better to play it safe. It's better to keep our mouth shut and not offend anybody. But what does Jesus think? What would Jesus have us do? Jesus knows the era has dawned with his ministry where there is an abundant crop of people who will accept him as the Messiah. Skip down to verse 35. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? Which is a proverbial expression meaning there's no need to hurry for a particular task. There's four months until the harvest Plant growth is always slow. It can't be rushed. It takes months. But that's not the case when it comes to spiritual things. There's an urgency. Jesus has an urgent sense of mission. The fields are ready for harvest now, now. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Christian, when you stand on your balcony or you look out your window across the city of Toronto, Jesus doesn't want you to see just a swamp of degradation and sin or just a cultural mecca of museums and opera houses and libraries or cool restaurants and bike trails and blog teal hotspots. He wants you to see a field ripe for harvest. Never forget that. A field ripe for harvest. Even now, verse 36, those who reap draw their wages. Even now they harvest the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. The people who are sowing and reaping, the evangelists who are proclaiming the gospel and winning souls for Jesus, they're stepping all over one another. So great is the miraculous bounty of unceasing fertility and prosperity, as was prophesied in Amos 9.13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the one who plows and the planter by the one treading grapes. Jesus had a ripe harvest evangelistic outlook. New City, do we have the same, if we're being honest? Can we say the same thing? Do we have a, a, a ripe harvest evangelistic outlook? When we proclaim the gospel, do we anticipate 
the Lord saving souls? Or do we zero in on the negative aspects? Do we zero in on the fact that if we faithfully live out the first four points of this sermon, we may be passed over for promotion at work? Or our family will think we've gone crazy. And our friends will think we're obnoxious, self-righteous fundamentalists. Do we expect the bounty of a great harvest and so boldly proclaim the truth? Or is our evangelism, if we evangelize at all, mere religious duty, a religious discipline, removed from the glad, glad expectation of a sovereign, saving movement of God's Holy Spirit? God forbid. Jesus says, the hour has come. Are our eyes open? Do we have the same sense of urgency as Jesus did for lost sinners? We must listen to what Jesus is telling us. We must follow his example and courageously with much less regard for our worldly reputations and with much more love for the lost. Apply these verses to our situation in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We need to pray to God for grace to believe God has many people in this city. People who have yet to believe or even hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where we come in. God can count on us. He can count on me as we indiscriminately proclaim the good news to all people with the intent to persuade them. Brothers and sisters, here's our call to Christian action. We need to be prepared, like Jesus, to evangelize anyone at the drop of a hat. Here's a woman with a bad reputation coming to a well for water. Jesus makes the most of it. And just like our Lord, we need to press the point that salvation turns on the Holy Spirit, mediated exclusively through Jesus. And just like Jesus, we must expose sin. We must show lost sinners the necessity of the new birth. We must resist the temptation, not to make it abundantly clear that the only worship God finds acceptable is in spirit and truth. And then we must pray to God for the grace to see Toronto as a place of ripe harvest, just waiting for faithful servants like you and me to work the fields and reap an abundant harvest for the glory of God. New City, let's learn from our master how to evangelize. Amen.